Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledygeek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I'm Eric Sipple. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And each week we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both the series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we're discussing tonight. Uh, and this week we get the band back together, and Varric reveals that um, much as Avatar The Last Airbender was secretly the Zuko show all along, uh, the Legend of Korra was originally titled The Legend of Bolin. So tonight we're going to be discussing chapters 407, Reunion, 408, Remembrances, and 409, Beyond the Wilds. But before we get to all of that, uh, what the hell have you guys been up to? Eric, what have you been doing? So I I, um, I burned a little bit of time this weekend watching the new Mystery Science Theater return. Yes. yes. <laughs> the reboot cool of um, Mystery Science Theater. Uh-huh. And it's interesting, you know, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, I You never know walking into that kind of thing. Can you recapture the feeling of something? And and actually, this is even, first of all, can you capture the feeling of something that's been gone for a long time, but also by the person that, though they started it, has not been doing it mm-hmm. for even longer? Joel um, Hodgkins, that is his last name? Hodgson. Hodgson, excuse me. Joel Hodgson hasn't been doing the show for a long time. He left, I think, when it went over to, to um, Sci-Fi Channel is when Joel finally yeah. cut the quarter and he left a little before that. He, but, yeah, I'm not sure, but, uh, but he, yeah, but this is his reboot and it actually lacks Mike Nelson, who was the head writer for even many of the Joel years. Right, so right. going into this, I really wasn't sure what to expect out of it. And the couple things surprised me. First of all, it feels like mystery science theater. It doesn't feel like a bad attempt to recapture it. It, Within, within the first half of the first episode, it's kind of already hitting its stride, which was awesome. But what I found really interesting was it's actually a return to the, like, mid-Joel era right. of Mystery Science Theater. And it's weird to talk about this kind of thing because you'd think a show that is, pe- like, people making fun of a movie wouldn't have a distinct era feel. But the Joel era was different. The host had much more of, like, a paternal relationship with the bots as opposed to, like, the rambunctious brother that Mike Mm-hmm. was yeah so that's back the invention exchange yeah is back in episode two um so it's just very interesting like even the joke styles it, it is it is joel era mystery of science theater and while i always considered myself a mike era person i have to say i like the return to the joel feel it's 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 refreshing I, i'm like super into it I, I i i'm more excited about it than i thought i'd be and i was a kickstarter person too so but right. definitely was it, I was in the in the groove for it, but it definitely caught me off guard, anyways. Yeah, I uh, I talked about this on the most recent Gobbledygeek, so I won't say too much other than to completely agree with you. I'm it gets two thumbs up from me. I'm further along in this season, so all 14 episodes are available right now because it's Netflix and that's how they do. But um, I've made it through eight of those episodes so far, and um, like I said on on our other show, it. Uh, it's the typical MST3K mix of the occasional genius and the the rest of it is just, you know, damn funny. So I feel like it has the potential to be right up there with some of the better seasons of the show in the past. And uh, I likewise was always, I, I was a Joel fan, like I watched through the Joel era, but uh, I have typically considered myself more of a Mike fan than a Joel fan, so... 
yeah, I, I was also a little bit surprised by just exactly how much I've enjoyed this. But then, you know, the real thing is we've gone 17 years. We've gone 18 years, I think, without new MST3K. And basically, I just, I mean, I just didn't realize how much I needed this shit in my life, man. It is, It, it was such uh, a moment of joy to, like, press play and and see brand new MST3K to hear the the MST3K love theme for the first time in 20 years whatever and and even if you only decide to watch one if you watch the first episode Reptilicus you will get a classic Joel era style MST3K song about yes. how every monster has a country and every country has a monster which is which is pure Joel era goodness yeah it, that I think that was re-listening to that song. I was like, "Wow, this is this is old school MST3K," and it will get stuck in your head. And I knew that because someone just tweeted, "Every country has a monster," and the song came back into my head. <laughs> it's, it's 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 time. brilliant. It's brilliant. I I personally I think of the eight that I've seen so far, the second episode, which Eric, I think you said you've seen one and two. Is that the is that the end of the end of the wild or whatever it, cr- it was called? Cry wilderness. Cry wilderness. Oh my god, that I, that was just. It was that rare moment of a the jokes being great, but the movie being so uniquely bizarre. Yes, yes. That it powered itself. It like is, I would have been fascinating watching that movie, anyways. That that one is right up there with like Mitchell and Space Mutiny for me. That I just feel like that episode is going to be endlessly rewatchable. But yeah, anyways. So very good stuff. Um, check it out uh, for some excellent puppetry. The only thing that I will warn you is. The robot voices don't feel as distinct as in earlier eras, so mm-hmm. it's taken me a lot longer to differentiate the voices, especially because Jonah and Tom don't sound that different. Yes, they. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Every once in a while, I actually have to watch the silhouettes to see whose whose head is moving while they're talking. Although I feel like by episode two, they were diverging a little more mm-hmm. as things went, especially Crow. Crow started to sound more like Crow, but that's I would say the biggest weakness is the robot voices are. A little harder to to parse. My my biggest problem, again, I said this before, but my biggest problem is Gypsy. Uh, I explained on our other show that they, whereas uh, Crow and mostly Crow, Crow sounds for the most part like Crow. Crow has pretty much always kind of had the same sort of voice, no matter who's done it. Tom Servo sounds different, but Gypsy is completely like 200%. doesn't sound even remotely like the old Gypsy. Uh, they didn't even make an effort to to bring back the gypsy voice, and I'm still eight episodes in. I'm still adjusting to that. <laughs> so, well, very good stuff. And enjoy if you need a a sick day kind of um, movie watching. Oh, so, so good. Yeah. So good. That's um, all I've got. That's all. That's what I've got. Well, uh, speaking of so good, um, there's you may have heard about this uh, little indie cartoon that's been making the rounds called Your Name. Have either of you heard of this? Yes. Yeah, just a little thing. Uh, uh, it's uh, the it's the fourth highest grossing film of all time in Japan. It's the highest grossing anime film worldwide. Um, I was just assuming that this was never going to come anywhere into my area, and I was going to have to wait for it to hit uh, streaming or or be released on Blu-ray or whatever. Uh, somehow, miraculously, uh, someone wasn't paying close enough attention to where they were booking this this film because it played in Birmingham. So uh, last night, Pam and I raced out to see that before they realized their mistake. And uh, 
<laughs> even though even though the uh the theater claimed that it was the the dubbed version like this the, this was our only choice our only option to see it so it's not like it would have made a difference but they said it was the dubbed version and so we sat down to watch it and it was the subtitled which is fine but that took a little adjusting <laughs> um but uh, anyway, so this is written and directed by uh, Makoto Shinkai, who he's done several films, but I was not familiar. With, I haven't seen any of them, and I wasn't familiar with his name before this. Um, it's, for those that don't know, uh, it's a, how, how the hell would I describe this? Um, sort of a, it's a pseudo-apocalyptic teen romance freaky Friday body switch anime. Is <laughs> what it is. Um it's about a teenage girl in a small rural town in Japan and a teenage boy from Tokyo that, uh, for some reason, find themselves switching bodies occasionally. And, you know, the first part of the film has uh, sort of takes humorous advantage of the whole exploring a new body, exploring a new gender aspect of the story. But I'm happy to say it's uh, it's ultimately that stuff is played like very real, very authentic. It's not goofy or titillating or cartoony or whatever so you get a couple little jokes based around that but the whole body switch thing they actually do a i think a very good job of what would two teenagers do if they suddenly discovered like if you woke up and suddenly you were in a teenage girl's body and had to live her life for 24 hours what the hell would that be like um second half of the film gets a little more serious uh it it gets very emotional and actually goes to some pretty pretty dark, very human but pretty dark even maybe heart-wrenching places uh, in the second half of the film the whole body swapping thing there are some complications involved in that that i don't want to i'm not going to discuss what those are i don't want to reveal anything but there's a stretch of the film where it felt to me at least a little bit like the story could possibly spin out of control maybe it was getting a little too convoluted and i was i was really having to to concentrate to figure out what was happening but it pulls itself together everything pulls together in a clever and satisfying way uh, by the end uh, and it also just happens to be one of the most beautiful beautifully animated films that i've seen in a very very long time um so if you have an opportunity to see this i know it's in very limited release right now but hey it came to my shit town so uh, if it's in your area and you have an opportunity to see it, I highly recommend it. I will check it out. That sounds really interesting. I, I am uh, I'm into that. That sounds up my alley. Um, and Arlo, I guess you don't have anything going on in your life, so we don't care. We'll just get on to the... <laughs> well, okay. All right. All right. I, I'll mention just really briefly, and I don't want to spoil anything because I know Eric hasn't seen it yet, but... Kubo and the Two Strings is on Netflix now, and uh, I watched it with Amber uh, the other weekend, and uh, Paul, I know you and I did a whole episode of Gobbledygeek uh, when the movie came out last year, and gosh, I really, I wish, it's, it's one of many episodes of our show that I wish we could go back and re-record like i don't know why i ever think it's possible for me to talk intelligently about uh, a movie or anything after having only seen it once because i know i loved kubo last year and said some glowing things about it on air 
but I, I love it so much more now. And I'm sure part of that has to do with some life experiences that I've mm-hmm. gone through mm-hmm. since, since uh, it came out in theaters, but it is such a, a beautiful film. I would consider it a masterpiece of animation. It's just absolutely incredible. And it really, really resonated with me even more than it did before. Um, and I, I got to say, it has like the perfect role for Rooney Mara. Because yeah. the, yeah. the thing with Rooney Mara is like, look, she's great. I loved her as Lisbeth Salander or however the fuck you say that name in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She's great in Carol. But she has this, her whole, every actor has a shtick. And her <laughs> shtick is that she's like a, aloof and alienated and, you know, <laughs> seems to be uh, on a different plane than everyone else. Um, and while she almost parodies herself in the new movie uh, The Discovery with Jason Siegel, she perfects that shtick in Kubo and the Two Strings because she, she uh, I mean, yeah, the character that she's playing, the characters that she's playing, the, the mask-wearing, faceless, emotionless sorceresses, I mean, it's it's pretty great and she's legit her, her voice performance is legitimately terrifying it is yeah like it's fucking it gets right down into your soul how, how fucking creepy it is. <laughs> um but kubo and the two strings you know i i would love to do a whole another show about it absolutely phenomenal one of the best movies that came out last year that was uh we covered that on episode 290 of gobbledy geek by the way so if anyone wants to go track that down Episode two ninety. Sure, uh, if you must blink, do it now. Is the title. I'm sure it's a good, uh, it's a good episode. But I just feel, if I were to go back and listen to it now, I would think that I I was woefully unprepared to discuss that film. There there are always things like we've been doing podcasts together for almost eight years, and after every single episode we record, I, I think of a hundred things I wish I had said or I that I could have said better. So, not the same way. Uh, so let's see, uh, let's see how bad we can, how, how poorly I can do uh, talking about this stuff tonight then, shall we? <laughs> so, let's do it. um, I think that just the way these episodes work, uh, I, I think maybe we, we should probably discuss these individually. What do you think? I agree. Okay. Yeah. I have no idea how we would talk about this, uh, together given the, um, that there's a big, a big honking, um, weird episode in the middle of these two yeah there's a great big hole in the middle here so uh we'll start uh arlo you're the noob so we're going to start off with you uh chapter 407 reunion you know i guess this deep into the podcast is a good time for me to say that part of me kind of hates going first because (laughs) you know I, i just mentioned that every time we record a podcast i wish i could go back and immediately re-record it and then like I'm I'm the first one to to pass judgment on these episodes, and I'm the only one who's only seen them once, and I just feel completely unprepared well, to ever discuss. Well, fortunately, shows. fortunately, as I discovered two episodes ago, we are not allowed to change the format of the show this late in our run. So, oh, I know you're stuck I with know. it, man. 
I know. So we're going to talk about episode uh, 407, Reunion. Uh, not to be confused with the great uh, season two Angel episode of the same name. Hmm. Um, or is it? Or is it? Um, so, I mean, it's called Reunion. Uh, and so appropriately, there are several reunions as, you know, it's it's weird to think we're halfway through the season, through the final season of the show, and this is the first time Cora has had screen time with most of these characters. Yep. Like, she's seeing uh, Asami and Mako and Tenzin and everybody for the first time in a, in a long time. Um, and honestly, my favorite part of her mini reunions uh was naga yes. like you know bounding all over the place and licking her on the face just so happy to see her that was so nice yeah, yeah. i think every episode should just be like 22 minutes of naga and cora happily prancing around <laughs> is, is this the episode where she's playing with naga by raising earth things and naga's chasing it around like a cat i can't remember which episode that was in yeah i think that was this one yeah I that was so. adorable it was yeah. just it was like a, the cutest use of bending for making your animal happy that mm-hmm. i've ever seen so i i loved it i loved it yeah and what i like about this and i i would have expected nothing less of the legend of cora is that these reunions aren't simple, like, I haven't seen you in so long, let's immediately resume our friendship from from, from the last save point. Hmm. Um, you know, their, their, their friendship doesn't respawn. Right. Um, though they're, they're still friends, when you go a really long time without seeing or even being in any kind of communication with someone for that long a period of time, you have to... You have to rebuild what do, was there. Do we do we know, or, or could we make an educated guess uh, over how long, like how much time these characters spent together over the course of the first three books? Because they've been apart for three years now, and I want to say that that is at least as long, maybe longer, than the time that they've actually known each other. I'm sure we have some studious listener out there who can email us at, uh, what's the email address, Paul? TARpodcast at gmail.com. At TARpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Thanks uh, for repeating that. <laughs> and they will, and they'll tell us how, how long uh, the first three books lasted, but I, I, I'm pretty sure they did not last quite three years. Yeah. They did not take up that much story time. So, yeah, they've been apart longer than they've actually, you know, for the majority of the time they've known each other. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she wrote to Asami, but uh, which which Mako is not happy to learn because he never even got so much as a hello from Korra. Um, but, you know, she comes back into their lives and Asami tells her that, you know, she was visiting her father and, and Cora immediately jumps on that. It's like, do you think that's a smart thing to do? And Asami, you know, tells her, you know, you've been gone three years. You can't, you know, assume, you know, what's best for me. Um, so I really liked how in typical avatar and Cora fashion, they didn't take the easy route. They took the time. They took this whole episode to get back to where these people were. I'm I'm with you. I 
I like that they really, really, really spend time with things, even little things like um, Asami getting letters from Korra while um, Mako did not, and um, the just like all the like the small things that fray when you're apart as a group, and how I don't know, it, it's it played very real for me as well, and it's all in an episode which has like a wacky caper basically. In it too, which is kind of amazing to me. The they, are you referring to the the car chase that we the whole the whole woo is cat kidnap uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. get him thing, which is to be honest, this was like like Korra at its most Buffy verse in that it has like a perfectly deployed standalone plot built to like force characters into situations together so that they can hash out character problems, mm-hmm. which is. About as buffy or angel as you can get. So this was definitely in that mode. And it hasn't been in that mode for a long time. Um, Yeah. uh, So I want to, first of all, we got Wu down. We we get Wu down a couple times in these chapters we're going to talk about, which um, we can never have too much Wu down, in my opinion. Um, But yeah, uh, just like old times, we get an old-fashioned car chase through the streets of Republic City. We get some, uh, we get some mecha suit versus lava bender action at a certain point. Yeah. We get you guys. I am so happy about Bolin. Yes. Like, I know I expressed some reservations at the beginning of Book Four as to you know. How could Bolin work for Kuvira? What does he not understand what's going on? And it's his, the you know, the dawning realization that he had no idea what he was partaking in has been done so well and so realistically. And, you know, then we get, you know, moments where he's no longer going to be Varric's minion. You know, Varric mm-hmm. is expecting Bolin to be the new Julie. And, Bo, you know, uh, Varric winds up, or I'm sorry, uh, Varric winds up carrying Bolin on his back for, uh, for through the woods. One, one of the great comedic beats, uh, there's a lot of good comedy in these three, but one of the great comedic beats was um, Varric, like, hop on, I'll I'll take the driver's seat, and uh, Bolin's so excited, and he takes one pained step, and then they get sucked up into a net. <laughs> yes. And Bolin's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that net joke was so great because... Once he starts like stumbling, you you think you know the end point of that joke, yeah. and then instead they get caught in the net. That was <laughs> such a beautiful misdirect. Oh man! I, I just I just love that Bolin is is growing a backbone mm-hmm. and realizing that he needs to like take control of of his his life and his actions, and um, you know he gets to do some badass lava bending later in the episode, and he. Uh, he goes back to save the the the, fu- the firebending fugitives, and um, one of them says, "You know, you didn't have to come back to save us." And Boleyn's response is just, "Yeah, I kind of did." I love and Bolin. that says so much about Bolin and and who he is. You know, you were right, Paul. This is this is the legend of Bolin. It is. It really is. And look at that hair. Come on, how can you not love Bolin with his messy hair in this episode? That was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that so was adorable. a That was a hella fight too. The the entire like fight at the at the at um Kuvira's Trump wall. That was <laughs> the Trump um wall. <laughs> oh, 
that, that was really like I, what I love about it are like the the mechas aren't like they, we learn we see new things with them like when the ice gets sp- splattered on the ground and they have like little like like extra like little like pivot legs that come out of the thing to like stop them and like all these things like they've been very carefully engineered to deal with bending mm-hmm. problems which I love like their defenses are like okay we're probably gonna get ice thrown under us let's not break from ice. Yeah, being thrown at our feet, and so I, I love those little touches in the way the mechas are designed. Yeah, that. So I have a comment on the the action uh, in book four so far, but uh, so the the mecha suits versus lava bender fight, it, it's fantastic. I loved it, but you know when you really stop and think about it, we don't we don't really see except for the tricks that the mecha suits have. Um, like there's not really anything new in that fight. It's over pretty quickly. Like it doesn't last a, a really long time. And uh, we don't see anybody do anything extraordinarily like new. Um, we've seen Bolin Lava Bend before, but it's just great in the context, like their character beats in it are great. The fact that we're seeing, like Arlo said, we're seeing Arlo, or we're seeing Arlo, we're seeing <laughs> Bolin like get a backbone and decide i'm not there yet i do not yet have a backbone i will let you know when i do you have a long ways to go um but anyway so like the character development that goes on in that fight is great but the fight itself is pretty standard but it is still it's still phenomenal to watch the the micro beats of that fight because again i'm the i'm the fight analyst guy here i love watching um if you watch bolin you see him do like traditional earth bending, like flinging chunks of rock or, or uh, you know, lifting up a wall to protect himself from fire. And then anytime he does the lava bending, there's distinct kinds of movements that he does with that. So even though, as I've said many times, Korra is less about the, the structured uh, martial arts styles to bending, there are still noticeable differences between the straight earth bending and the lava bending. And again, as I've said before, I just love watching Bolin uh, transition from being sort of the bumbling comic relief to actually being a badass at something. So he, he actually has a much harder pivot towards badass than um, uh, Sokka did mm. who pivoted towards being a tactical genius, but was always sort of a goof in combat. Yeah. Like, not to say he was never he was all ineffective the whole time, but he might get one or two good things and then be a goof again. Bolin is at the point now where he goes long stretches of being in it and maybe the biggest badass in the room. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, that's a good point. You don't you don't really worry about Bolin when he's in a fight because you just you know he can he can take care of himself. Yeah. So he's. He's he is like absolutely up there with the uh, with the benders, and it's funny because I was thinking like, man, Mako doesn't have anything up on it, but Mako is a lightning bender, so right. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that both of them have their own weird thing because they are they're brothers. They just got their own their own twist on their version mm-hmm. of stuff, uh, and we have although speaking of which, have we seen Mako lightning bend? In a long, like I feel like I haven't seen him Lightning Man in a long time. Not not this season. Like the last time we saw it was the end of book three when he took out Ming Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So, dude needs Lightning Band. But as we've are as we've discussed uh, previously, <laughs> we've we've had stretches of this season that haven't had Mako in it at all. So yes, like, uh, like... Speak, speak. Go ahead. 
Oh, I, I, we should probably check in with AJ with Arlo on the uh, Mako front since this is a Mako heavy episode. Yeah. This is the most I've liked Mako in a long time. Actually, you know, a, a few weeks ago, it's uh, I was saying how this storyline with Prince Wu is is the most I've liked Mako in seasons, and that remains true. I just love. I feel like they're really bringing him back in into the fold as a crucial part of the group and actually doing something with his character, which is not to say, you know, his detective skills weren't helpful in, in the last season or two, but I feel like there's actually a focus on who Mako is on the inside. Um, but I, I love this whole thing. And of course the one time he doesn't uh, go to the bathroom with Wu, Wu gets kidnapped by Kuvira support supporters. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, their whole, you know, Wu getting kidnapped and their whole mission to rescue him um, was, that was pretty standard Korra stuff, but it was worth it because we got to see what their dynamic is like now, three years later. Plus, um, we also get to see Korra use what she learned from uh, Yoda Toph about how to uh, use the spirit vines to, you know, connect with all around her and track Wu. So that was cool. Um, but then just getting to see the dynamic between Korra, Asami, and Mako, and, you know, how you know, they walk in lou- openly, loudly bickering about, you know, how they're looking for Prince Wu. And then, you know, the, the two the two uh, Kuvira supporters on the, uh, on the train, just like look at each other. And I'm like, I, maybe if you're looking, <laughs> if you're looking for a deposed Prince who has been kidnapped by uh, the, the minions of the current uh, fascist in chief, maybe don't go around running your mouth about it. <laughs> um, I don't know. Just, that just seems like the first lesson for a group of, uh, freedom fighters but 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 it, um, it, it is great that it was Korra and Mako that were running their mouths at each other like that because that's kind of their dynamic that's true but I mean Asami was also a little annoyed because you know, yeah Korra but she had... she wasn't mouthing off until they got back in the like she that's was true. mouthing off by saying guys shut up that's true so it was um, it was Korra and Mako that couldn't stop bitching at each other and I love um you know afterwards uh, one, Wu thinks that a good reward for being rescued is to uh, ask Korra out on a date. Mm-hmm. I love how hard Korra shoots him down. I love Korra's relationship with Wu. <laughs> how about never? <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Asami says, just like old times, except for the getting on each other's nerves part. And Mako responds, actually, that is like old times for me and Korra. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the group hug that uh, that like Wu tries to get into, and they and Korra he tries just sticks to get her in hand on. out. Um, and then uh, Mako and Bolin's creepy grandma, um, <laughs> yes. she 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 uh, faints the, oh, the mere man. sight of Wu, and Mako's just like she loves royalty. It's kind of it's kind of great that uh, Mako and Bolin's family have been living at the Sato estate. I don't I don't know yeah. why. I'm just I'm glad the Sato estate still has a you know, serves a, a purpose. Um, but we cannot uh, finish this episode without mentioning the train fight. 
Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. I didn't want it to be the person who's like, and by the way, also the fight in that scene, which I already done once for this episode, <laughs> and I was going to do again, but I'm glad I, I didn't loved, have to. I know it's a, like a cliche at this point, but I love any sort of fight or chase that takes place aboard a moving train. There's just something, I mean, there's like a whole subgenre of train movies, and it's just because it's such a good, it's a small confined space that is also barreling along at insane speeds. I mean, if you're looking to amp up the tension for any given chase or fight sequence, you can't really do much better than that. So, th- this was like catnip for me, just watching them <laughs> run around the train, get up on the roof of the train and then um having the kuvira supporters metal bend the roof of the train mm-hmm. like it, around the gang before uh cora flies them out of there um yeah i loved all of that see it, literally any fight where where asami gets to use the electro glove absolutely is a good fight, absolutely <laughs> i agree i was gonna say man i just please can she she needs two gloves and two electro boots for god's sakes <laughs> She just needs an entire electric suit. The, honestly, the the um, Asami has I like a very particular style of martial arts that reads as her own, which I like because usually that you'd expect that for the benders. But Asami being like just a straight martial artist with that glove, um, Asami fights like Asami, mm-hmm. and I like that because it'd be easy to get lazy on the non-benders. Not to say that Avatar ever did because we had um, Ty Lee and May who were non-bender martial artists who had their own styles back in Avatar, so I shouldn't be surprised. But they they do a great job on Asami's fighting. I would love... I, I feel like this must have been done somewhere, but, like, if, if... Listeners at home, if you know of this, could you send me a link? But I would just love to see a... Like, a video essay, like a side-by-side comparison of all of the non-benders um, to just see what their fighting styles look like played side-by-side. Um because you're right, Asami has Asami fights in Asami style, and I, I feel like that would be recognizable. Like even if you kind of blurred the character out and we didn't know it was Asami, but you just watch this figure fight, I think we could figure it out. We'd be like, oh, that's Asami. So I wonder if the same thing. Well, yeah, I feel like Tai Lee is pretty recognizable too, since she was the a chi blocker. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, I I love the the individualities that these characters have so before we move on i want to speak about because this is probably the best place to do it i want to speak about just the um action the the fight sequences and and action set pieces in this season as a whole so far so book three i think we'd all agree that book three uh was pretty flashy there were a lot of really elaborate fight sequences and stuff just by the very nature of the red lotus how they were all just like monstrous badasses they were the brotherhood of evil benders exactly exactly so by comparison at least so far book four has seemed um actually kind of tame um as we've just discussed the two fights that take place in this episode are great i don't have or three actually um i don't have anything against anything negative to say about the fights that we got tonight but when you compare it to season three not really mind-blowing um what do we feel like that is uh, first of all do do we feel like that's a problem like are, is it a come down coming from book three and all the really uh, the, just the amazing mind-blowing fight sequences to the slightly more standard stuff we're seeing now um and do we feel like it's appropriate perhaps 
considering the change of antagonist that we've gotten in this season. I'm curious for Arlo's point of view on this. I definitely have one, but I'm, I'm really curious about Arlo's. Um, I definitely don't think of it as a come down. I think you're onto something with saying that it's, um, it's sort of tailored to who our chief antagonist is because Zaheer had a lot of, you know, Zaheer and the Red Lotus had a lot of, as we said in the show, they were overpowered mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Um, so it sort of had to be flashy since there were so many different uh, uh, insane abilities being used in every fight. Um, whereas this, Kuvira is much more about, she's not about flash. She's about like strategy and tactics and, you know, systematically breaking down her opponent. Except when um, she was embarrassing Korra. That's true. I mean, come on. You gotta... Yeah, I know. You know, if you have the opportunity to bitch slap the, the Avatar, you're, you're gonna take it. Yeah. Although, although even in that, her, her and that was strategic. was not super flashy. It was... Yeah, it was she was, like, very careful because she knew she was overpowered <laughs> in that fight. Uh-huh. And she very carefully continues to egg the avatar into a bad place so and and even her doing that was that was for a strategic purpose that wasn't her being a cocky show-off just because she's a cocky show-off there was a reason for that so um all right yeah no i agree i i I, it just dawned on me that i was loving these fights like particularly the the bolin the mecha suits versus lava bender stuff i i loved that um but after the fact, I was like, you know, that nothing really happened in that fight, but it was great. So I was just remembering. Well, the, the thing I think is important about about the fighting in this is that, you know, the first three seasons were very much escalations mm-hmm. from the last one. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, like the bad guys were continuing to get more and more powerful. And after Zaheer, who's flying, like literally flying around, the the, the in order to have another bender escalation from there would probably break the world. Mm-hmm. In a way, because the Zaheer crew already were, and the whole point of them was that they basically broke the world. They had to be kept separate in special prisons because they were so overpowered that nothing could take them. So how do you go above that? And I like that the show decides not to do that and make a villain whose threat is a little more cerebral mm-hmm. and um, whose tactics are actually a little more banal. Like, you know, she overwhelms you with well-crafted, um, hard-to-beat armies as opposed to an overwhelming bit of force from, like, one mega bender. So I, I think it's, like, a, a smart decision on a meta level for the show to back off from trying to escalate the bending powers every year. Um, but it also gives a very different kind of approach because, you know, great, you can beat two mechas, but she has, like, a hundred of them. So what do you do in yeah, that case? Yeah. Um, and she's very much a kind of a mirror of the Amon side of things. We're actually back to the world that Amon started, which is like, do benders even matter? Like is the, the Kuvir is certainly a bender and she definitely uses benders, but she's built an army that makes benders somewhat obsolete in the yeah. way that she used using them. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, are, are we good with that episode? Do we want to move on? Oh, yeah. I think we do. We, we should point out that, uh, the very end of the episode is uh, Kuvira and uh, fucking Batar Jr. Huh. Hate that guy. Um, finding uh, 
even more powerful spirit vines that they can harness for their uh, mysterious super weapon. And where do they find those, Arlo? Oh, they're in the uh, the swamp. That's right. Yeah, it's it's yeah. the tree. It's the tree that like the the spirit tree. That's right. That's right. Yeah, in, in Dagobah. Yep. <laughs> exactly. So I'm sure that's uh, that'll pay off. Um, all right. So let's move on to the next chapter, the elephant koi in the room, shall we say, of our discussion this week. Uh, obviously, is going to have to be uh, chapter 408, Remembrances. So Arlo, why don't you uh, walk us down memory lane? Okay, so when you guys told me there was going to be a clip show in the final season of The Legend of Korra, I was a little crestfallen. I mean, uh, the last clip show I can recall seeing was in the final season, I think, of The Office. And or no, I don't, It might not have been the final season, but it was late period Office. And it was just such a, a baffling callback because at that point, and that was before, um, at least a couple years before this episode of Korra, clip shows were like an anachronism. Like they they don't exist anymore. You the eighties and nineties were full of them. I'll tell you that. Yeah, they they oh I know they were. Um, but I mean at least in, in Western TV we don't ever get clip shows anymore because audiences are too savvy. You know everything is available for streaming and and or purchase. You don't really have to, you know, be reminded of what happened. Um, like when I think of a clip show, what I go back to is the Golden Girls in their kitchen pulling out a cheesecake and just sitting at the table going, "Remember when we did this?" And then like the 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 the, the twinkling flashback music, and then it's like Sophia doing some crazy shit. Um, so <laughs> picture this. Um, so that's what I think of when I think of a clip show. So I was so. I was so not looking forward to this episode, but I have to say, while this is far from an essential episode of The Legend of Korra, and you could you could not just not watch it, and your experience of the show would not be diminished whatsoever, it is a damn fine clip show. It is probably the best clip show I have ever seen. You know, the, now, the weird thing is, when when people, even the creators, when they talk about this... And we'll put a link in the show notes. There, there was Brian Canisco, one of the co-creators of the show, right before this episode originally aired on his Tumblr. He gave an explanation. He was like, guys, the episode's about to air, and I just want to warn you straight up that it's going to be a clip show, and this is why. So he explains why the whole – and Eric, I think you mentioned this on our last show, that this was coming up, and it was because they their budget was cut and so on and so forth. Um, but like when people reference this – as a clip show, they they also talk about Ember Island players from Avatar: The Last Airbender, um, which I think is kind of unfair because Ember Island players, even though it was in essence a clip show and it was made for the same reasons because they they didn't have the budget to pay for a fully animated episode, um, it was not actually a clip show. Like we weren't seeing flashbacks; they weren't recycling old animation. It, it was it was brand new animation. Now, I read that Brian Konitsko blog post you linked me to, and it'll be in the show notes. 
I don't think he's being unfair to Ember Island players. If anything, I think he's saying, you know, that was a whole new episode they had to do that wound up being really difficult to make. Um, but, you know, they use it as an opportunity to, you know, toward the very end of the Aang gang's journey to comment on everything that had come before and to, you know, sort of recontextualize some of the stuff that had happened, poke fun at themselves. And they, if anything, what I took from what he said was that even though they didn't have much money for this episode, um, and just to remind folks at home, though Eric did explain a few episodes back, they did this episode because their budget got slashed by a whole episode's worth, and they did not want to let any cat, you know, any crew go. So they did the honorable thing, just went ahead and did a clip show anyway. Um, but what I took from his blog post is that with very little resources, they they wanted to try to like reverse engineer a clip show that could live up live up to the Ember Island players that could serve the same function instead of just being again like uh, Blanche and Dorothy eating cheesecake and going remember when. Yeah, but I guess what I mean, what I'm getting at is that for some reason, when anybody talks about this, they also mention Ember Island players as if Ember Island players was a a successful example of them doing a clip show before. And my point, I, my point was Ember Island players wasn't actually a clip show. It wasn't. You're right. But I, so I think what they try to do with remembrances is sort of the same thing. And honestly, like it was way more entertaining than i expected it to be uh the only honestly the the most boring part is the segment in the middle yeah with cora with 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 cora because that is the 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 most that this episode gets to being a simple like remember this is what happened at this point in time yeah um the re the thing i like about the cora one is it is thematically useful um it it sort of refo it does what ember island players did more which was uh, by the end of it, which was like, let's focus you on what what Cora's core like character issue is mm-hmm. and where her journey is. I agree, it's the least interesting and exciting as a result, but I do like that they use that for uh, the purpose as like a lens of where Cora is going to be going from here. Um, so I like that. I and just as a call out to my my I think the final episode that one of my favorite Avatar writers, Katie Matilla, worked on. Mm-hmm. She's one of the three. Writers, yes, there are three writers they threw at this episode, which I'm going to guess that each one took one of the clip show strands. Yeah. I have no idea who worked on what, although um, although the um, the particulars of the um, of the Bolin one make me think that was hers, but it may not have been. Um, so they they actually threw writers at this and and did their thing. And so anyway, we should probably talk, should we talk about the individual pieces? Cause there's three, we talk yeah. about Cora's, but there's Cora's there's Cora, Mako and Bolin basically. Yeah. Um, and Mako's was, was really entertaining just because, so there is a little new animation in these, ep- or in this episode. Yeah. Like five and, minutes, I think Brian says. Yeah. And so, uh, it opens with Mako doing his best to train, Prince Wu, who as soon as Mako even, uh, you know, tries to throw a punch, just crumples into the fetal position and screams Wu down. And Mako has a line like, you're so weak, Wu down has become your catchphrase. (laughs) Um, Which I'm fine with, for the record. (laughs) 
<laughs> and and then I love Wu saying, I'm not like you, Mako. I wasn't raised by a pack of cops in the woods. Yes, that's a great line. <laughs> um, that's maybe my favorite line Wu has said so far. Um, and what I love about his is that, yeah, it's pretty standard clip show stuff. Like, it's a recap of Mako's journey. Um, well, actually, I kind of like that because getting a concentrated dose of Mako and seeing how he has changed and what path he's taken actually makes me feel a lot better about the character. It reminds me that I really did like him um, at the beginning of the show, and I, I, I really do like him again. Um, but obviously, the best part about the Mako segment are the, the, the chibi, uh, the, the little chibi Greek chorus that's that's happening. Um, that is just commenting all over his his recollections and you know everybody from uh, uh, what's his name is it, is it Tui two. two 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 and his grandma and it's 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 pretty funny it's, and it's I loved hilarious. the supercut of Cora and Mako just fucking yelling at each other <laughs> that was great that was great I the the main thing this this bit of the clip show did for me was make me really miss pro bending. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. yeah. So sad. Um, and, I mean, and then, I, I and like then Cora it, happened. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I like that uh, Mako's ends with um, him talking about how, you know, Cora has been such an inspiration to me. And even as boring as the Cora segment is, and it's, it's the briefest of the segments too. Um, it continues that theme of Asami and Tenzin telling her, what an inspiration she is and has been, even if she doesn't see it. So it, it works. All, all of it works. All of it is, the, is framed in a way that doesn't feel like the character spinning their wheels. So my favorite thing about the Korra portion of it is just that um, we get some more uh, Korra and Asami time, which we, we've commented before. We don't get enough of, um, like As- yes. Asami, ju- Asami just doesn't get enough screen time. Period. But we we all love the friendship that is formed, especially since in the first season the, they were set up to be romantic rivals for Mako or whatever. Uh, it's just so refreshing that at this point in the series they clearly have become fast friends, and so any opportunity to have them on screen together, uh, like just talking, is fantastic. So that was my favorite part about that. I completely agree. I love that. Uh, Asami has become like Korra's confidant. Yeah. But uh, it's all, it's all prologue <laughs> to what is quite <laughs> frankly one of the most brilliant runs of comedy in the show. In my yes, opinion. In, in possibly both shows. Yeah. Oh my god, fucking John! I love John Michael Higgins. I loved John Michael Higgins before I even knew he ever did a voice on a show called the legend of Korra. And this may be the single funniest thing he has ever done. <laughs> it is, I love, I goddamn love Varric so much. <laughs> and his whole framing Bolin's real life story as uh, a nuck tuck mover and like conflating <laughs> everything that has happened over the last you know, f- three and a half books is so fucking funny. I mean, even if all we got was uh, Vatu, the biggest, meanest, scariest kite that ever flew, <laughs> it, it would be worth it. But then 
you guys, holy shit, the funniest part of the whole thing is the three-way phone call between um, Aman, Vatu, and Zahir, which, you know, Aman's like, can we please not include, and then it fucking slides over, and it's Unalak, not include who, Aman? <laughs> the evil Unalak, the diabolical but incredibly boring and unpopular sorcerer from the north, who's listening in on the other line. <laughs> Holy shit, I love that they know how much everyone hated Unalak and just fucking use this opportunity to ruthlessly shit on Unalak. <laughs> so, it's so great. It, it may be the, like, the meanest way possible because like the all the villains trying to keep him off of a phone call is like <laughs> the greatest possible indignity that you could do. I, I've been waiting for this scene since that since the, the shot of Zaheer on the radio like way yeah. back in season three and I was like oh my god this is the scene they use for the phone call the conference call and I can't wait. I've been I've been like chomping for this we we haven't done since we've gotten to Korra, we haven't done a lot of the the spin-offs that we'd like to see stuff we did i feel like we did a lot of that when we were talking about avatar we haven't done so much in Korra, but there in this batch of episodes there are two spin-offs three if you count bolin's hair i feel like bolin's messy hair deserves its own <laughs> spin-off but there are two spin-offs that i would straight up pay good cashy money to to watch read or listen to whatever form you want to give it to me i mean we with the whole nuck tuck hero of the south mover storyline that we got back in book two and it in book four we've gotten the adventures of varric and bolin renegades um that whole thing i feel like there really needs to be a varric bolin spinoff Oh, definitely. They should have their a whole series of like Hope Crosby road movies. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but seriously, on the road to <laughs> But but seriously, if we could only have one spinoff of of anything, I want a hundred episode long series of the fearsome foursome phone tree. That that is what I want. <laughs> And it, you don't have to do anything in it at all. Like, they never have to actually get together. I don't want to see them go to PTA meetings or anything. I want every <laughs> single episode, although that would be great. Oh, so wait, you don't want to see them go to PTA meetings? But I just want every single episode to be the three of them talking on the phone and fucking boring-ass Unalak trying to butt in. On no, you know, you know what we want this needs to be is basically Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Yes, but with yes. Them. I'm so glad you mentioned that because actually what like that what that whole sequence reminded me of like the way they used the old footage like I, it legit reminded me of Space Ghost. I'm so happy you mentioned that because I was just about to. It's it, it, it suddenly turned into like a William Street production partway <laughs> through that segment and I could not have been happier. Oh, it's geez. it's it's all it's all just like super wonderful and and must must shout out to Bolin's anger that Zombie Yaman doesn't get to do anything in the whole story. First of all, Zombie Yaman in yeah. the first place. But like, what about Zombie Yaman? Oh my gosh. Uh, um, so, so, Paul, you, you mentioned that Varric uh, dubs them the Fearsome Foursome. Also gives them a few other names. Okay, mm-hmm. here are our options. I want you guys to tell me what your favorite is. We have the Fearsome Foursome, Evil Squared, Terror Square, or Legion of Darkness. Terror Square. Terror Square. <laughs> uh, oh, that's 
sounds like something you could buy at a bakery. You said like a like a half dozen terror squares. <laughs> we'll focus group it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love man. it. And then you know, Varric ends it with the 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 Mark Twain line of uh, "Never let the truth get in the way of a good story, kid." I <laughs> oh my gosh, it, this whole fucking clip episode was worth it. This whole series was worth it just for the the fearsome foursome phone tree. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah. It's so great when when he when Zahir first calls Vatu and he's like, uh, "Glad I caught you at home." Oh, very funny. As if I could go anywhere but this tree. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Hearing like another thing that that got like the the Space Ghost thought lodged in my head, besides the fact that I'm always thinking about Space Ghost, um, is that Vatu? I guess. I never realized that when he's just talking and like uh, about mundane things, he sounds a lot like Moltar. <laughs> I, I really badly want this show to happen. Uh, Nickelodeon needs to form their own version of Adult Swim just for this thing to get off the ground. Yep. Sweet. Yep. Sweet. Just a brilliant thing, full of brilliant, brilliant moments. I, I think my my favorite non phone tree moment was the very end of um, the story after, like, Giant Bolin has defeated Giant Unavatu. And then he's like, oh, yeah, and then he turns into a dragon and saves the Avatar or something. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Can we just mention, since you since you mentioned Giant uh, Bolin, I <laughs> adore the fact that it was just the giant spirit Korra kaiju with like her heaving breasts and everything. And they just superimposed Bolin's face over it. <laughs> so giant spirit Kaiju Bolin was wearing Korra's clothes and had Korra's <laughs> build. I love it. I love it. Like this really is the single best clip show of all time with the, with the possible exception exceptions of the clerk's clip show, which was literally the second episode and the made-up community clip show, but apart from those, <laughs> this was this is the best true clip show. I'm, I'm I love it. I'm so thrilled. I had actually forgotten how hilarious the the fearsome foursome phone tree thing was. So I'm thrilled that we had so much fun with this. I, this was this was my last thing that I was that I was like hinting at for like episodes and episodes, y'all. This is it. That was the. The phone tree was the last thing that I was like, remember that? Remember this shot? This is going to come back. That was it. I'm out. Oh, I'm done. So great. So, oh my God. We, so hold on. Not only do we get a, a, a surprisingly hilarious clip show, we also get to, to lose the dead weight that is Eric Sippel for the last few episodes <laughs> of the show. Your, your own personal um, unlock is now, is now done. <laughs> your own personal unlock. <laughs> Wow, Arlo's just about rebranding songs tonight. Someone to hear your phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, Puck, let's try to let's try to get serious for the last chapter here, guys. We got we got one more to go. Oh, there was another chapter. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So Puck. we've got to be the only uh, Legend of Korra podcast that is reluctantly moving past remembrances. The, the only episode. one, I just got to say, I need to pat myself on the back. The only one that breaks into Depeche mode. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> With Golden Girls references and yeah, the, yes. whole, the whole shebang. You guys, we're a pretty good podcast. We're all right.
right. Like, right. we're not half bad. <laughs> I, I'd listen to us. No, I wouldn't. No, you don't. You clearly don't. Uh, all right. Chapter 409, Beyond the Wilds, Arlo. What, is, what lies beyond the wilds? After, after the, the fearsome foursome phone tree, this, it, I had to have like a come down moment. Like I, I didn't have a lot of time to, to like decompress because I cut it the closest I've ever cut it doing this podcast. I ran out of time to watch these episodes yesterday. So I like, I crammed them all in after I got home from work tonight. Um, so I had to like immediately go into the next episode. So I will be honest my mind wasn't quite there for the first few minutes of this episode. (laughs) Um, But uh, so, okay. Uh, So we have the uh, spirit vines in, in in this is, are we in Republic city right now? Or okay. The spirit vines. See, I don't, I don't know where the hell I am. Uh, We have the spirit vines in Republic city going nuts because of what Kuvira and Batar jr. Are doing to the, uh, to the, the Dagobah tree. Um, What's the, what do we call the tree? It's the Banyan Grove is what they call it. But I like Dagobah tree. Dagobah. Yeah. Dagobah tree. Definitely. Um, So the spirit vines are going nuts and they, they go after Napoleon Dynamite, um, which honestly he he deserved it with his bleached hair. <laughs> I love though. I love Maria Bamford as his mom. Mm-hmm. Like she just yeah. I, I love her mom voice. Isn't he the um, best Airbender ever? <laughs> and then his dad's like, I'm just happy he has something to do. <laughs> um, but we have the world leaders deciding not to attack Kuvira and I found that conversation very interesting Um, there's a moment where Tenzin says she hasn't done anything aggressive toward the United Republic and I almost like my mind like auto auto filled in you know toward the United States Mm -hmm. like that that that's that's where I went Um, it's a very fascinating conversation I mean I don't know if on the show we have made the Kuvira Hitler comparison, but I think this takes us back to um, what happened in World War II. Um, you know, we did not get involved in the war. I mean, Hitler, the Nazis were taking over Europe. Yeah. And we didn't do anything until the Japanese attacked us. So it's interesting to see the same kind of conversation happening here where Kuvira is very clearly she's a fascist she's a dictator she has um, her re-education camps her control is spreading uh, throughout the earth kingdom but because she hasn't directly attacked the united republic the world leaders uh, decide not to do anything and cora was not invited to the meeting which she was very very indignant about yeah um so i guess that's an interesting question i have for you guys like so you know the 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 world leaders decide on isolationism in this instance like i mean what would we do in their shoes what i like about this that makes this discussion really possible is that the easy thing would have been to have Tenzin want to fight and Raiko again be the person standing in the way as he had been 
in the past. <clears throat> what I like about this is that Raiko is arguing to fight Kavira, who we know is a problem, and it's Tenzin arguing most against it, and then Azumi, is that the yeah. Fire Lord's name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Fire Lord Azumi saying, like, we've been in too many stupid wars, we're not going to get into a war. I, lo- I and love so it that. Puts, that was that was awesome. Um, and but so it puts us in a position where our emotional ties to a character, which is normally what we would let draw us in one direction or another, is now working against what we know, which is that Kavira is in fact really dangerous. So it splits your loyalties, and it, because of that, it forces you to think about like Arlo, what you said, which is like how do we how do we feel about this? And I I think that it's it that Raiko has it correct that they're that Kavira is dangerous. He's broken. She's broken um, the agreements they've already made multiple times, um, which I think is what Lynn argues mm-hmm. that that she's already broken agreements. She's already said she was going to step down and didn't. We can't trust her future promises. And Raiko, who has been wrong for the entire series, suddenly feels right to me. You know what he's arguing for is an uh, is a not happy thing to argue for. But what else do you do? How do you stop Kavira? And... Except by standing up. And he gives in, I mean, I'm not saying this is a knock against him. I actually feel like it demonstrates that he's grown up, (laughs) but he's making a rational argument for conflict. And when the others disagree, he doesn't push it. He's like, all right, then we'll just, we'll concentrate on building our defenses. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I like that he's sort of forced into it because obviously it's the way I read it was without the Fire Nation backing him, mm-hmm. he just didn't have the military strength to do anything. Mm-hmm. Anyways, there was no play without Azumi backing him, and hopefully the Airbenders, but mostly the Fire Nation. So it's it's a it's a crappy situation, and I I like I like the analogies you were drawing, Arlo. That it's like, well, maybe we can just skirt past this. Sucks for those poor Earth Nation people, but you know, not like, our problem. It- I, I think about this kind of thing a lot because I think it's it's one thing to be anti-war, and I'm I'm definitely anti-war. I I am a primarily a pacifist, um, but you know, not to get too heavy, but since the show is inviting this conversation, um, you know. There were people who were deeply disappointed in Obama because of what he did with drone warfare, and I'm not saying I'm a fan of that kind of thing, but you have to think anybody who assumes a position of power like that, no matter how noble and how anti-war they might be, you have to make really tough, really terrible decisions. So I'm always thinking like, no, I don't want to go to war with with you know another nation over something that we don't have to but at the same time because we do you know we don't exist in a in a the perfect world that we wish we did because we exist in a world where there are people who would attack us we have to be ready to go on the defensive and i think that's a big you know i i don't think you want to play uh i don't think you want to overreach or or make shit up like with the iraq war go uh, into war for completely illegitimate reasons but at the same time i i think you have to be willing to to wage war uh if 
if necessary. And and so if you think I've thought about this, like if there was another Hitler figure, and I really, as I'm saying that in this social climate, I'm really fucking hoping there's not going to be. But if there is another Hitler type figure, at what point would we decide that? Yes, we need to step in. Um, oh, you so mean, I don't know. You this... mean if that Hitler figure isn't us? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> if, it, if it isn't us, oh Jesus! Um, so that's just something I think about a lot. So I, I don't know. I like the fact that the show goes to those very m- murky gray areas. Yeah, I agree. Um, although the um, we get in show because we have to um, keep moving plot wise a um, Deus Ex Varric to um, resolve the conversation to a certain degree with his Varric oh, quote, which is the Varric quote of the episode, the whole quote of the episode, which is, she's making a super weapon, which is just like a normal weapon, but super. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which that was is pretty great. Which is wonderful. But I do like, actually, you know, if we're going to draw, um, there's a an interesting sort of like World War II parallel here of like, um, you know, we had like a lot of defecting scientists mm-hmm. out of... Um, yeah out of the the uh, Nazi empire and um and that's sort of what we have here with Varric Varric defecting with dire warnings of um scary weapons being developed. So uh, Ver- Varric is the uh Avatar World's Oppenheimer. Is that where this is going? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I guess so. He's Oppenheimer. <laughs> now I'm just imagining like uh Varric in uh Jonathan Hickman's uh Manhattan Projects like <laughs> infinite varics inside his own mind eating each other well we already amazing <laughs> we already had in a previous episode of hilarious varic quote that i had written down but we never i never got a chance to use it when uh when you know he was using varic and julie as as uh units of measure or whatever and yeah. he was like shut it down shut it down there are too many varics <laughs> that's great i would that's... like you all to life hack and just imagine Varric giving Oppenheimer's quote in his own voice of I am become death destroyer of worlds. <laughs> Just imagine Varric saying that. There oh, you go. Oh, he would make Julie say it for him. <laughs> but... Um, so I have a question for you guys, and this is just a, a detail that I've missed. So we have Fire Lord Azumi, and I know that she's been in the show earlier this season. Where does that leave Zuko? Like is he Z- no longer? Yeah, Z- Zuko's retired. That's his daughter. Yeah, okay, yeah. All right, I guess I just, when, when we saw her earlier, I didn't think about that. So apparently you you can retire from being Fire Lord. It's not something like until death. Yeah, yeah I guess. I mean, he's he stepped down or whatever, but yeah, she's Fire Lord now. He's, okay. he's like Fire Lord Emeritus now. Yeah. Okay, all right. Cool. Got it. And uh, this is the first time we've heard her speak. She has, we've seen her in episodes before, but this was her first uh, line of dialogue. Maybe her only. I can't remember if we ever hear her speak again. So I would definitely like a lot. I would love a, an Azumi side story. Yeah. I just want to know what it's like being, being the person who follows Zuko. Yeah. And all of his terrible fuck ups <laughs> as Fire Lord. How bad, you know, how bad did he leave things for her? <laughs> But, you know, we were talking before acting like Zuko was still Fire Lord when we were saying, well, he got better at it. Maybe he just never did. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, and she's voiced, and this is, that is her only line. 
Um, she's voiced by April Stewart, who voices Rava. Oh, wow. Um, by the way, totally random, April Stewart's first credit was in 2002 for the Die Hard Nakatomi Plaza video game. Okay. So, Interesting. Right. There you go. The more you know. We just got learned. All right. But so so that's the 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 one plot was definitely this whole thread. But there's a I don't know how I'm like I'm itching to talk about it. Okay. Um, I know where you're going. We're we're about to get to here, right? Yeah. Okay. Before we get to that, because I feel like there's one other thing that we need to hit on. We get first of all, this is the final, the full reunion. Like the team is really back together now. The the fire ferrets are reunited in this because in the reunion episode, Bolin was still off playing with Varric, but now everybody's back together. So we get the group hugs with everybody. And uh, that means that Bolin and Opal are reunited. And I just want to give some major props to the show. We're about, I'm about to give tons of props when we start talking about Zaheer, but um, I feel like it's important to point out how well the show handles the Bolin and Opal stuff. Uh, yeah. Because, a lesser show could have taken like we're we're winding up to the the end. We're we're approaching the finish line on this series and the show is still willing to take the time to have Opal not just immediately forgive Bolin because he's sweet and kind of goofy. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean I, I mentioned earlier that I loved how realistic they played the gang reuniting after three years. And I love, the, we, we get the same level of, uh, of realism when Bolin goes back to Opal. It's not going to be a simple thing. He, he did it under the best of intentions, but he, he didn't realize what he was doing mm. by working for Kuvira. And that is something that is very, very difficult for Opal to reconcile, especially because her family is in such grave danger. Um, so yeah, I love that. It's not just a matter of him like coming back and sweeping her off her feet, but now he has to accompany her to uh, like on a secret mission to Zalfu uh, to save her family. Yeah. How brutal is that picnic scene, man? I'm sorry you had to hear that, Papu. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a absolutely brutal deconstruction of Bolin's really moronic tactic. Yeah. To win her back. That was there were like Opal was having none none of his shit with that. And he pretty much deserved all of it. Yeah. And it's it's just great that that follow like that harsh reality follows the the previous the clip shows wacky Varric version of how this was going to play out when, yeah. when he was telling the story where Opal would forgive Bolin for quote, whatever stuff he was talking about earlier, which will probably not be in the final cut of the mover anyway, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so life is not a mover Bolin. Sorry. Life yeah. is a winding reffin. Is, <laughs> is, um, in joke is, um, did anyone else read like Opal's like drag along of Bolin into this mission? It's just a little bit manipulative. Yeah, I'll, yeah, just a tad. But that's sure. Fine. There's one thing you can do. Yeah, you can come on this highly dangerous mission with us. I mean, to be fair, it is an appropriate penance for what he did. Yeah, like, True. like it's a, that's why it's, I can't I can't say it's like super manipulative because if you're gonna make up for things, this is pretty much the best way, which is to actually write the damage. 
mm-hmm. that you've caused. But the way she leads into it, like, you'll do anything, huh? All right. <laughs> well, join the mission. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a character damaging in terms of manipula- manipulative, but yeah. Okay, so let's get to the, the big kahuna. The reason, yeah. the reason we're all here. If we can't talk any more about remembrances, we might as well talk about this stuff. So, um, how do we feel? Uh, uh, never mind. Uh, Arlo, take us into it. The 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 final act of this episode. The the reason this episode exists. I am so surprised and so happy that we got more a here. Like when. I was watching the, the the fearsome foursome phone tree. I couldn't tell if that was Henry Rollins or not. Like, did, did they really get Henry Rollins to come back for a clip show? Um, you know, and I so I went on the the Avatar wiki, and sure enough, they did. And so I was really I was even more surprised to see him like actually come back to the role of Zaheer in the following episode. You know, as um, you know, long haired hippie freak. Uh, Zaheer and I love that he is Zaheer is still my favorite villain Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that he has afforded the opportunity to witness his failure to you know as we've discussed earlier his whole plan of anarchy all it did was create the conditions to allow for someone like Kuvira. And I love that Korra confronts him with that. And he admits some form of guilt over that. You know, he didn't realize that would happen. Didn't realize how powerful Kuvira would become. Um, and I love that this is far, far from uh, a, a redemptive act, but I love that he actually helps Korra get over the trauma that he inflicted upon her, you know, only by visiting him and reliving what happened to her and accepting it. Can she truly move on? And I, 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 I I thought it was great. Yeah. I, what the, the moment when she tells him that it's his fault, the look on his face is fantastic. He gets a pretty serious reaction beat to Korra saying that all you did was mm-hmm. create the yeah. worst ruler possible. And it, it hits him. Like, he doesn't brush it off. It it, it lands. Yeah. And uh, the, the episode doesn't make this explicit, but there's also take into consideration the fact that not only did his whole uh, life's purpose create a vacuum that now an even more dangerous dictator has stepped up to fill but doing so cost him his friends and the life of the of you know his lover of his significant other and his freedom he's back in prison again but so he sac- he literally sacrificed everything in the hopes of changing the world and he just ended up making it worse yeah, yeah. it's the the whole aesthetic of Zaheer at this point too is really interesting. This sort of like chained, um, crazy sage thing. Yeah, yeah. Like he's floating. He's got a, the beard back, although not quite as intense as it was, and flying around. Like just like he's. It's a very interesting thing, and it's an interesting evolution for Zaheer. And and it's one of those times where you have to remember it's been three years mm-hmm. since 
they saw each other last that Zaheer has been chained in here for three years. So, like, it's it shows don't usually do those kinds of time jumps, and then you also don't usually get the villain from the previous season after that kind of time jump, so I find it interesting to get back to him. But um, I, I, I feel like this is probably the one plot thread most injured by having to have a... Um, a clip show episode by them not having as many episodes i kind of wonder completely if this would have gotten a whole episode otherwise yes yeah so that was my next big question is how do we feel about the the resolution of cora's ptsd because i i 200 percent love the way it happens i love the fact that she has to go to zahir the all of that stuff i just wish that it could have had an episode to itself to do that because it ends up feeling just a little bit rushed. We've spent, you know, nine episodes of this entire season with her dealing with her PTSD. And then it, it really just gets wrapped up in the space of a couple minutes. So on the one hand, it's super satisfying the way it happened on the other. I really wish it could have been given a full episode or, or even half of an episode. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the actual resolution it really works. I think that where we probably lose it is more lead in to to that moment to a degree. But I, the thing I really love about the way it ends up dealing, I love that what Zaheer talks her through is like, don't turn away from the memory, let it play out. Which is don't... the same thing Toph told her. Yeah, which I love. Like yeah. I love that that's what it is, and it's like you can't change it. You can't you can't stop what's happening, but you have to just like go through and accept. And I like that that that's the core message of it is that like she she's every time she sees that she breaks because she can't witness it through because it feels like it's happening again and her way through is to accept that it did happen that it it was an event that occurred and there's nothing she could do to stop it at this point so i really like the use of that even though it is a very fast moment yeah i just i lament the loss of opportunity to have like a whole an entire act of a full episode dedicated to her and Zaheer wander her and and what'd you call him chained up sage (laughs) (laughs) wandering the spirit world like he could he could have become her reluctant uncle Iroh but did, did, did you did you did you all find the moment of her reuniting with Rava strangely emotional too like I wouldn't have thought her reuniting with Rava would actually hit me emotionally, but it did. I, at the risk of being the asshole, it just kind of felt like the, the, it was inside her all along. Like, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It, it, it didn't, it, which it was. Yeah. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't quite hit me that way. That, that was probably the biggest example or the biggest thing that made me feel like this, this feels rushed because I did. Yeah, I, agree. I, I certainly, I loved the fact that Rava is back. Um, but yeah, the whole Rava, Rava comes back. Uh, she, she was inside you all along that like literally took six seconds. Of time, it's, so. it's very, very fast. I, I agree. I mean, I think that like, I didn't read it as the, the like, it was inside you all along, although that's almost literally the quote they used, but that wasn't my, it didn't hit me on that level. I think because, like, there had been a wall, like, amongst the other walls that Korra had was a wall blocking her off from the other half of her avatar self, mm-hmm. um, which the, maybe it was just the realization that that was another part of the cost of what she'd been living through the last three years. 
um, even though it's extremely fast, that, that works for me. Although it does beg the question, this, this might just be one of those metaphysical things that we've, we've struggled with a couple of times through Avatar and, and maybe Korra. It does beg the question of why did we get the whole scene of um, Vatu physically destroying the Rava spirit like and we even yeah, get the flashback yeah. to it in this so if the Rava spirit wasn't actually destroyed by that what was the like why did we see that no um, we, we we they they did deal with that in season two to a degree of what actually happened that there's still a piece of Rava there okay um uh I, yeah no I I think I think that season two mostly deals with that I think it's just lost in a lot of the weirdness at the end of season two all right don't make me revisit season two to answer that question. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so what else did we get in this? Um, oh, wait, I want to, I need to give a shout out to Bolin's new look. Um, are, are we done with this here? Anything else we want to say about that? Um, I, I would love for there to be like for for Zaheer to take like a, going back to spinoffs. Let's get like the uh, like the angel equivalent with Zaheer, like after his years as as Angelus, you know he oh has God, to atone is... for his sins. No, see, I, I have a completely different pitch for the Zaheer spinoff, and it's not a full show, which is that the um, the Bolin Varric series because there's going to be so much hijinks really could use a G.I. Joe-style PSA at the end of everyone. <laughs> and Zaheer should do those. Oh, Jesus. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. God. There needs to be an entire just industry of Avatar and Korra spinoffs. And... But but every every single Zaheer PSA is some kind of like overly philosophical anarcho lesson. Like, <laughs> it's not like a helpful child thing. It's like totally like straight out of anarchy anarchist philosophy like teaching kids to do that that's what i want a psa that is a more the the anarchist more, psa what's that the anarchist psa yes exactly like any just take any of his monologues and like distill it into some goofy kid psa message at the end of it it's beautiful oh man just set me up for that show you guys can have the, the very bullying show i'll, I'll write the, <laughs> i'll write those here psas awesome um all right so change direction just the tiniest bit and say that bolin gets a new like we didn't even mention cora gets a new outfit so cora is back in republic city she gets out i i loved her uh earthbender like her earth kingdom gear that she was wearing i loved seeing her in green but uh she's back in her more traditional um water tribe look but it's an updated version of that outfit which uh brian Kanitsko has specifically said like when he he streamlined an earlier look he loved the the top the, the tunic that she wore in i think he said book two um but he streamlined it a little bit he gave her the the full length sleeves but off the shoulder and the shorter skirt and all that but he was specifically trying to evoke a kind of superhero feel for her outfit um and then bolin his new outfit once he gets back to republic city uh I call it his rocketeer suit. I just, it, it's got the, the brown kind of flight jacket looking thing with the, the asymmetrical button off to one side. I don't know. The idea of Bolin as the rocketeer amuses me. So I love that look. 
Uh, all right, well, that's all I've got. Is there anything else? Anything we didn't cover? Uh, Pabu and Bolin got their their little reunion, just like Naga and uh, Korra did, so that was sweet. Yes. Which was a good payoff to the two episodes earlier when he was upset because if if uh, Pabu had been there, he would have just chewed through the right. vines right, yeah. and were leading to Varric's like, that's something else about Zuli, her incisors. I can't even remember what the hell the quote is, but he <laughs> praises her incisors. <laughs> in that. So anyways, we get that paid off with his re- his re- reunion with Papu in this. Okay. Wow. Guys, we survived a clip show and we had a damn good time doing it. Yes, we did. Hell yes, we did. I'm, I'm so... The, nothing makes me happier than that the clip show got warm... A warm reception because that was my feeling when I watched it too. It it does it was better than it had any right to be by a wide margin, and um, I'm glad you all enjoyed it too. We, I thought we, it was just me defending it. We are truly the heroes of the internet. We enjoyed a clip show. <clears throat> so that was a blast. Uh, if there's nothing else, uh, it's, all that's left is to thank everybody at home for listening. Um, as always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website, theavatarreturns.com. Uh, links will also be posted on our parent show's site. That's gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Make sure you never miss another exciting episode. There's only three left. Uh, while you're there, please uh, be a hero and rate us or write us a review. That really helps to spread the word. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, please send your correspondence, care of Monkey Yahtzee to tarpodcast at gmail.com and of course you can always find us on social media facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash tarpodcast and on twitter I am at haunt1013 Eric is at salon that's s-a-a-l-o-n and Arlo is at unplugged crazy uh, next in the words of beloved co-creator Brian Konitzko who's getting a lot of play tonight uh, poop gets real as we head into our final four uh, it's bittersweet because, well, we love real poop, uh, but we're not ready to say goodbye to this world yet. So, Arlo, this is your next to last opportunity to do this. Oh my God! I've really, I've really whiffed it the last few times. Like you've struggled. I've got to fuck. I've I've got to make a. I've got to stage my comeback. Yeah, your batting average is not very impressive, young man. So, and you only get you only get two chances. You only get fuck. two chapters next week. So we're only going to be talking about two instead of three chapters. So the pressure is on. So make these good, man. Here All we right, go. Fuck. Next right, week. Let's do it. <laughs> next week, chapter four ten, Operation Bayfong. Um, it Lynn just really fucking loves playing Operation. It's just her and Toph. Um, reminiscing over a game of the classic Operation. <laughs> but I'm excited about that. Either that, or or it's um, it's sort of like Operation Dumbo Drop, where they have to like <laughs> drop the entire Bayfong clan like onto Kuvira's army uh, to well, stop them, which actually sounds kind of badass. That would work. <laughs> See, that sounds too badass for one of your predictions. So I'm going to stick with the Operation game. But I, uh, for bon- bonus points, what is the figure on the Operation board that they're playing? Who are they operating on? Ooh, who are they operating on? Yeah. Uh, they're operating on Unalak. <laughs> oh, geez. Wow. Beautiful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and lastly, Chapter 411, Kuvira's Gambit. Um, Kuvira has a lot of really strong feelings about uh, 
everyone's favorite uh, card-throwing X-Men, uh, Gambit, and she's really frustrated by the lack of forward momentum on the Hollywood version, so she decides to pay Channing Tatum a visit to, to finally get this, get, get this organized, and uh, basically Kuvira uh, uses her fascistic military might uh, to direct the next installment in the X-Men uh, film franchise, Gambit, starring Channing Tatum. Wow. So so Kuvira is going to enter competition against with Varric in the mover business. That's right. That's right. Or should I say, um, we, oui, Sherry. <laughs> oh, wow. We have some exciting episodes coming up. Great. <laughs> All right. I those were good. I did it, you guys. Those were good. It. Those were good. I think you I think you nailed those. Congratulations. I'm, I'm now embarking on my own Angel Slash to hear spinoff <laughs> of Redemption. Oh, man. All right. Good job. So uh, thanks again, everybody. Uh, until next week, remember, I'm going to poke it with a stick. Reach out, touch space. space.